Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time, The Heart of Darkness, by Joseph Conrad. Lie back, close your eyes, and let me help you fall asleep. And now, on with our story time. Chapter 1 the Nelly, a cruising yawl, swung to her anchor without a flutter of the sails, and was at rest. The flood had made, the wind was nearly calm, and being bound down the river, the only thing for it was to come and wait at the turn of the tide. The sea reach of the Thames stretched before us like the beginning of an interminable waterway. In the offing, the sea and the sky were welded together without a joint, and in the luminous space, the tanned sails of the barges, drifting up with the tide, seemed to stand still in red clusters of canvas sharply peaked, with gleams of varnished spirits. A haze rested on the low shores, ran out to sea in vanishing flatness. The air was dark above Gravesend, and farther back still seemed condensed into a mournful gloom, brooding motionless over the biggest and the greatest town on earth. The director of companies was our captain and our host. We four affectionately watched his back as he stood in the bows looking seaward. On the whole river, there was nothing that looked half so nautical. He resembled a pilot, which to a seaman his trustworthiness personified. It was difficult to realize his work was not out there in the luminous estuary, but behind him, within the brooding gloom. Between us there was as I have already said somewhere, the bond of the sea. Besides holding our hearts together through long periods of separation, it had the effect of making us tolerant of each other's yarns and even convictions. The lawyer, the best of old fellows, had, because of his many years and many virtues, the only cushion on deck. It was lying on the only rug. The accountant had brought out already a box of dominoes and was toying architecturally with the bones. Marlowe sat cross-legged right aft, leaning against the mizzenmast. He had sunken cheeks, a yellow complexion, a straight back, with aesthetic aspect, and with his arms dropped the palms of his hands outward, resembled an idol. The director, satisfied the anchor had good hold, made his way aft and sat down amongst us. We exchanged a few words lazily. Afterwards, there was silence on board the yacht. For some reason or other, we did not begin that game of dominoes. We felt meditative, and fit for nothing but placid staring. The day was ending in a serenity of still and exquisite brilliance. The water shone pacifically. The sky, without a speck, was a benign immensity of unstained light. The very mist on the Essex marsh was like a gauzy and radiant fabric, hung from the wooded rises inland and draping the low shores in diaphanous folds. Only the gloom to the west, brooding over the upper reaches, became more somber every minute, as if angered by the approach of the sun. And at last, in its curved and imperceptible fall, the sun sank low. And from glowing white 
changed to a dull red without rays, without heat, as if about to go out suddenly, stricken to death by the touch of that gloom brooding over a crowd of men. Forthwith, a change came over the waters, and the serenity became less brilliant, but more profound. The old river in its broad reach rested unruffled at the decline of day. After ages of good service done to the race that pebbled its banks, spread out in the tranquil dignity of a waterway leading to the uttermost ends of the earth. We looked at the venerable stream, not in the vivid flush of a short day that comes into parts forever, but in the august light of abiding memories. And indeed, nothing is easier for a man who has, as the phrase goes, followed the sea with reverence and affection, and to evoke the great spirit of the past and lower reaches of the Thames. The tidal current runs to and fro in its unceasing service, crowded with memories of men and ships it had borne to the rest of home or to the battles of the sea. It had known and served all the men whom the nation is proud, from Sir Francis Drake to Sir John Franklin, knights all, titled and untitled, the great night errants of the sea. It had borne all the ships whose names are like jewels flashing in the night of time. From the golden hind returning with her rotund flanks full of treasure to be visited by the Queen's Highness and thus pass out of the gigantic tale to the Erebus and terror bound on other conquests and that never returned. It had known the ships and the men. They had sailed from Deptford, from Greenwich, from Erith. The adventures and the settlers, king's ships, and the ships of men on change, captains, admirals, and the dark interlopers of the eastern trade, and the commissioned generals of East India fleets, Hunters for gold, pursuers of fame. They had all gone out on that stream, bearing the sword and often the torch, messengers of the might within the land, bearers of a spark from the sacred fire. What greatness had not floated on the ebb of that river into the mystery of an unknown earth? The dreams of men, the seed of commonwealths, the germs of empires. The sun set, the dusk fell on the stream, and the lights began to appear along the shore. The Chapman Lighthouse, a three-legged thing erect on a mudflat, shone strongly. Lights of ships moved in the fairway, a great stir of lights going up, going down. And farther west, on the upper reaches, the place of the monstrous town was still marked ominously in the sky, a brooding gloom in sunshine, a lurid glare under the stars. And this also, said Marlowe suddenly, has been one of the dark places of Earth, He was the only man of us who still followed the sea. The worst that could be said of him was that he did not represent his class. He was a seaman, but he was a wanderer too, while most seamen lead, if one may so express it, a sedentary life. Their minds are of the stay-at-home order, and their home is always with them, the ship and so is their country, the sea. One ship, 
is very much like another, and the sea is always the same. In the immutability of the surroundings, the foreign shores, the foreign faces, the changing immensity of life, lied past, veiled not by a sense of mystery, but by a slightly disdainful ignorance. For there is nothing mysterious to a seaman unless it be the sea itself, which is the mistress of his existence and as inscrutable as destiny. For the rest, after his hours of work, a casual stroll or a casual spree on shore suffices to unfold for him the secret of a whole continent. And, generally, he finds the secret not worth knowing. The urns of seamen have a direct simplicity, the whole meaning of which lies within the shell of a cracked nut. But Marlowe was not typical, if his propensity to spin yarns be accepted. And to him, the meaning of an episode was not inside like a kernel, but outside, enveloping the tail, which brought it out only as a glow brings out a haze in the likeness of one of these misty halos that sometimes are made visible by the spectral illumination, moonshine. His remark did not seem at all surprising. It was just like Marlowe. It was accepted in silence. No one took the trouble to grunt, even. And presently, he said, very slow, I was thinking of very old times. When the Romans first came here, 1900 years ago, the other day, light came out of this river since, you say nights, yes. It is like a running blaze on a plain, like a flash of lightning in the clouds. We live in the flicker. May it last as long as the old earth keeps rolling. But darkness was here yesterday. Imagine the feelings of a commander of fine, what do you call him? Hiram, in the Mediterranean, ordered suddenly to the north, run overland across the Gauls in a hurry, put in charge of one of these craft, the legionnaires. A wonderful lot of handy men, it must have been too. Used to build, apparently by the hundred, in a month or two, if we may believe what we read. Imagine him here, the very end of the world, a sea the color of lead, the sky the color of smoke, a kind of ship about as rigid as a concertina, and going up this river with stores or orders or what you like, sandbanks, marshes, Forests, savages, precious little to eat, fit for a civilized man, nothing but Thames water to drink, no Falernian wine here, no going ashore, here and there a military camp lost in a wilderness, like a needle in a bundle of hay, cold, fog, tempests, disease, Exile and death. Death skulking in the air, in the water, in the bush. They must have been dying like flies here. Oh yes, he did it. Did it very well, too, no doubt. And without thinking much about it either. Except afterwards, to brag of what he had gone through in his time, perhaps. There were men enough to face the darkness. And perhaps he was cheered by keeping his eye on a chance of promotion to the fleet at Ravenna by and by. If he had good friends in Rome and survived the awful climate. Or think of a decent young citizen in a toga. Perhaps too much dice, you know, coming out here in the train of some prefect, tax gatherer, or traitor even, to 
to mend his fortunes. Land in a swamp, march through the woods and in some inland post feel the savagery. The utter savagery had closed around him. All that mysterious life of the wilderness that stirs in the forest, in the jungles, in the hearts of wild men. There's no initiation either into such mysteries. He has to live in the midst of the incomprehensible, which is also detestable. And it has a fascination too that goes to work upon him. The fascination of the abomination, you know. Imagine the growing regrets, the longing to escape, the powerless disgust, the surrender, the hate. He paused. Mind, he began again, lifting one arm from the elbow, the palm of the hand outwards, so that, with his legs folded before him, he had the pose of a Buddha reaching in European clothes and without a lotus flower. Mind, he said again. None of us would feel exactly like this. What saves us is efficiency, the devotion to efficiency. But these chaps were not much account, really. There were no colonists. Their administration was merely a squeeze, and nothing more, I suspect. They were conquerors, and for that you want only brute force, nothing to boast of, when you have it, since your strength is just an accident arising from the weakness of others. They grabbed what they could get for the sake of what was to be got. It was just robbery with violence, aggravated murder on a great scale, and men going at it blind as is very proper for those who tackle the darkness. The conquest of the earth, which mostly means the taking away from others of a different complexion or slightly flatter nose than ourselves. It is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. What redeems it is the idea only. An idea at the back of it not a sentimental pretense, but an idea, and an unselfish belief in that idea. Something you can set up and bow down before, and offer a sacrifice to. He broke off. Flames glided in the river, small green flames, red flames, white flames. Pursuing, overtaking, joining, crossing each other, and separating slowly or hastily. The traffic of the great city went on in the deepening night upon the sleepless river. We looked on, waiting patiently. There was nothing else to do till the end of the flood. But it was only after a long silence when he said in a hesitating voice, I suppose you fellows remember I did once turn freshwater sailor for a bit. That we knew we were fated before the ebb began to run to hear about Marlowe's inconclusive experiences. He spoke. I don't want to bother you much with what happened to me personally. He began, showing in this remark the weakness of many tellers of tales who seem so often unaware of what their audience would like best to hear. Yet to understand the effect of it on me, you ought to know how I got out there, what I saw, how I went up that river to the place where I first met the poor chap. It was the farthest point of navigation and the culminating point of my experience, it seemed, somehow, to throw a kind of light on everything about me and into my thoughts. 
It was somber enough, too, and pitiful. Not extraordinary in any way. Not very clear, either. No, not very clear. And yet, it seemed to throw a kind of light. I had then, as you remember, just returned to London after a lot of Indian Ocean, Pacific, China Seas, a regular dose of the East. Six years or so. And I was loafing about, hindering you fellows in your work, and invading your homes, just as though I had got a heavenly mission to civilize you. It was very fine for a time. But after a bit, I did get tired of resting. Then, I began to look for a ship. I should think the hardest work on Earth. But the ships wouldn't even look at me. And I got tired of that game, too. Now, when I was a little chap, I had a passion for maps. I would look for hours at South America, or Africa, or Australia. And I would lose myself in all the glories of exploration. At that time, there were many blank spaces on the Earth. And when I saw one that looked particularly inviting on a map, but don't they all look like that? I'd put my finger on it and say, When I grow up, I will go there. The North Pole was one of these places, I remember. Well, I haven't been there yet, and shall not try now. The glamour is off. Other places were scattered about the hemispheres. I have been in some of them, and, well, we won't talk about that. But there was one yet, the biggest, the most blank, so to speak, that I had a hankering after. True, by this time, it was not a blank space anymore. It had got filled since my boyhood with rivers and lakes and names. It had ceased to be a blank space of delightful mystery. A white patch for a boy to dream gloriously over. It had become a place of darkness. But there was in it one river especially, a mighty big river, that you could see on the map, resembling an immense snake uncoiled with its head in the sea, its body at rest, curving afar over a vast country, and its tail lost in the depths of the land. And as I looked at the map of it in a shop window, it fascinated me as a snake would a bird, a silly little bird. Then I remembered there was a big concern, a company for trade on that river. Dash it all, I thought to myself. They can't trade without using some kind of craft on that lot of fresh water. Steamboats. Why shouldn't I try to get charge of one? I went on along Fleet Street, but could not shake off the idea. The snake had charmed me. You understand, it was a continental concern, that trading society. But I have a lot of relations living on the continent. As it's cheap, and not so nasty as it looks, they say. I am sorry to own I began to worry them. This was already a fresh departure for me. I was not used to getting things that way, you know. I always went my own road, and on my own legs, where I had a mind to go. I wouldn't have believed of it myself, but then, you see, I felt somehow I must get there by hook my crook. So I worried them. The men sat, my dear fellow, and did nothing. Then, would you believe it, I tried the women. I, Charlie Marlowe, set the women to work to get a job. Heavens. Well, you see, the notion drove me. I had an aunt, a dear, enthusiastic soul, she wrote. It will be delightful. I'm ready to do anything, anything for you. It is a glorious idea. 
I know the why. A very high personage in the administration, and also a man who has lots of influence with, etc. She was determined to make no end of fuss to get me appointed skipper of a river steamboat, if such was my fancy. I got my appointment, of course, and I got it very quick. It appears the company had received news that one of their captains had been killed in a scuffle at Natives. This was my chance, and it made me the more anxious to go. It was only months and months afterwards when I made the attempt to recover what was left of the body that I heard. The original quarrel arose from a misunderstanding about some hens. Yes, two black hens. Fresslevin, that was the fellow's name. A Dane. He thought himself wronged somehow in the bargain, so he went ashore and started to hammer the chief of the village with a stick. Oh, it didn't surprise me in the least to hear this. And at the same time, to be told that Fresslevin was the gentlest, quietest creature that ever walked on two legs. No doubt he was. But he had been a couple of years already out there, engaged in the noble cause, you know. And he probably felt the need at last for asserting his self-respect in some way. Therefore, he whacked the old man mercilessly, while a big crowd of his people watched him, thunderstruck. Till some man, I was told the chief's son, in desperation at hearing the old chap yell, made a tentative jab with a spear at the white man. And of course, it went very easily between the shoulder blades. Then the population cleared into the forest, expecting all kinds of calamities to happen. While, on the other hand, the steamer Fresslevin commanded left also in a bad panic, in charge of the engineer, I believe. Afterward, Nobody seemed to trouble much about Fresslevin's remains, till I got out and stepped into his shoes. I couldn't let it rest, though. But what an opportunity offered at last to meet my predecessor. The grass growing through his ribs was tall enough to hide his bones. They were all there. The supernatural being had not been touched after he fell, and the village was deserted. The huts gaped back, rotting, all askew within the fallen enclosures. A calamity had come to it, sure enough. The people had vanished. Mad terror had scattered them, men, women, children, through the bush. And they had never returned. What became of the hens, I don't know either. I should think. The cause of progress got them, anyhow. However, through this glorious affair, I got my appointment. Before, I had barely begun to hope for it. I flew around like mad to get ready. And before 48 hours, I was crossing the channel to show myself to my employers. And sign the contract. In a very few hours, I arrived in a city always makes me think of a whited sepulcher. Prejudice, no doubt. I had no difficulty in finding the company's offices. It was the biggest thing in the town, and everybody I met was full of it. They're going to run an overseas empire, and to make no end of coin by trade. A narrow and deserted street in deep shadow, high houses, Innumerable windows with Venetian blinds. A dead silence. Grass spouting between the stones. Imposing carriage archways right and left. Immense double doors standing ponderously ajar. I slipped through one of these cracks. Went up a swept and ungarnished staircase. As arid as a desert. And opened the first door I came to. Two women, one fat, the other slim, sat on a straw-bottomed chair, knitting black wool. 
The slim one got up and walked straight at me, still knitting with downcast eyes. And only just as I began to think of getting out of her way, as you would for a somnambulist, stood still and looked up. Her dress was as plain as an umbrella cover, and she turned around without a word and preceded me into a waiting room. I gave my name and looked around. Deal table in the middle, plain chairs all around the walls. On one end, a large, shining map, marked with all the colors of a rainbow. There was a vast amount of red. Good to see at any time, because one knows that some real work is done in there. A deuce of a lot of blue. A little green. Smears of orange. And, on the east coast, a purple patch. The show where the jolly pioneers of progress drink. The jolly lager beer. However, I wasn't going into any of these. I was going into the yellow, dead in the center. And the river was there, fascinating, deadly, like a snake. Oh, the door opened. A white-haired secretarial head, but wearing a compassionate expression, appeared and a skinny forefinger beckoned me into the sanctuary. Its light was dim, and a heavy writing desk squatted in the middle. From behind that structure came out an impression of pale plumpness and a frock coat. A great man himself. He was five foot six, I should judge, and had his grip on the handle of ever so many millions. He shook hands. I fancy, murmured vaguely, was satisfied with my French, bon voyage. In about forty-five seconds, I found myself again in the waiting room with the compassionate secretary, who, full of desolation and sympathy, made me sign some document. I believe I undertook, amongst other things, not to disclose any trade secrets. Well, I'm going to. I began to feel slightly uneasy. You know, I am not used to such ceremonies. And there was something ominous in the atmosphere. It was just as though I had been let into some conspiracy. I don't know. Something not quite right. And I was glad to get out. In the outer room, the two women knitted black wool feverishly. People were arriving and the younger one was walking back and forth, introducing them. The older one sat on her chair. Her flat, cloth slippers were propped up on a foot warmer. She had a cat reposed on her lap. She wore a starched white affair on her head, had a wart on one cheek, and silver-rimmed spectacles hung on the tip of her nose. She glanced at me above the glasses. The swift and indifferent placidity of the look troubled me. Two youths with foolish and cheery countenances were being piloted over, and she threw at them the same quick glance of unconcerned wisdom. She seemed to know all about them, and about me too. An eerie feeling came over me. She seemed uncanny and fateful. Often far away there, I thought of these two, guarding the door of darkness, knitting black wool as for a warm paw, one introducing, introducing continuously to the unknown, the other scrutinizing the cheery and foolish faces with unconcerned old eyes. Are they? old knitter of black wool, moritori te salutant. Not many of those she looked at ever saw her again, not half by a long way. There was yet a visit to the doctor, a simple formality, assured me the secretary, with an air of taking an immense part of my sorrows. 
Accordingly, a young chap wearing his hat over the left eyebrow. Some clerk, I suppose. There must have been clerks in the business. Though the house was as still as a house in a city of the dead. He came from somewhere upstairs and led me forth. He was shabby and careless, with ink stains on the sleeves of his jacket, and his cravat was large and billowy, under a chin shaped like the toe of an old boot. It was a little too early for the doctor, so I proposed a drink, and thereupon he developed a vein of joviality. As we sat over our vermouths, he glorified the company's business, and by and by, I expressed casually my surprise at him not going out there. He became very cool and collected all at once. I'm not such a fool as I look, quoth Plato and his disciples, he said, sententiously. He then emptied his glass with great resolution, and we rose. Then the old doctor felt my pulse, evidently thinking of something else the while. Good, good for there, he mumbled. And then with a certain eagerness asked me whether I would let him measure my head. Rather surprised, I said yes. When he produced a thing like calipers and got the dimensions back and front, every way, taking notes carefully. He was an unshaven little man in a threadbare coat, like a gabardine, with his feet in slippers. I thought him a harmless fool. I always ask leave, he said, in the interests of science, to measure the crania of those who go out there. I replied, and when they come back, too? I never see them, he remarked. And the changes take place inside. He smiled, as if at some quiet joke. So you are going out there. Famous. Interesting, too. He gave me a searching glance and made another note. Ever any madness in your family, he asked, in a matter-of-fact tone. I felt very annoyed by this. Is this question in the interests of science, too? I asked. It would be, he said, without taking notice of my irritation. It would be interesting for science to watch the mental changes of individuals on the spot. But... Are you an alienist? I interrupted. Every doctor should be a little, he said. He continued, I have a little theory, which you, Matures, who go out there must help me to prove. This is my share in the advantages my country shall reap from the possession of such a magnificent dependency. The mere wealth I leave to others. Pardon my questions. You are the first Englishman coming under my observation. I hastened to assure him I was not in the least typical. If I were, said I, I wouldn't be talking like this with you. He said, what you say is rather profound and probably erroneous. He laughed. Avoid irritation more than exposure to the sun. Adieu. How do you English say goodbye? Ah, goodbye. Adieu. In the tropics, one must, before everything, keep calm. He lifted a warning forefinger. Do call me. Do call me. After that visit, one thing more remained to do. Say goodbye to my excellent aunt. I found her triumphant. I had a cup of tea. The last decent cup of tea for many days and in a room that most soothingly looked just as you would expect a lady's drawing room to look. We had a long chat by the fireside. In the course of these confidences, it became quite plain to me. I had been represented to the wife of the high dignitary. 
goodness knows to how many more people besides, as an exceptional and gifted creature, a piece of good fortune for the company, a man you don't get hold of every day. Good heavens. And I was going to take charge of a two-penny, half-penny river steamboat with a penny whistle attached. It appeared, however, I was also one of the workers. With a capital, you know. Something like an emissary of light. Something like a lore sort of apostle. There'd been a lot of such rot let loose in print and talk just about that time. And the excellent woman, living right in the rush of all that humbug, had carried off her feet. She talked about weaning those ignorant millions from their horrid ways, until, upon my word, she made me quite uncomfortable. I ventured to hint that the company was run for profit. She spoke. You forget, dear Charlie, that the laborer is worthy of his hire. I listened, thinking, it's strange how out of touch with truth women are. They live in a world of their own, and there has never been anything like it, and never can be. It is too beautiful altogether, and if they were to set it up, it would go to pieces before the first sunset. Some confounded fact we men have been living with contentedly ever since the day of creation. It would start up and knock the entire thing over. After this, I was embraced, told to wear flannel, be sure to write often, and so on, and I left. In the street, I don't know why, a strange feeling came to me that I was an imposter. Odd thing that I, who used to clear out for any part of the world at twenty-four hours' notice, with less thought than most men give to the crossing of street, had a moment, I won't say of hesitation, but of startled pause before this commonplace affair. The best way I can explain it to you is by saying that, for a second or two, I felt as though, instead of going to the center of a continent, I were about to set off for the center of the earth. I left in a French steamer, and she called in every blamed port they have out there, or as far as I could see, the sole purpose of landing soldiers and custom house officers. I watched the coast, watching the coast as it slips by the ship is like thinking about an enigma. There it is before you, smiling, frowning, inviting, grand, mean, insipid or savage, and always mute with an air of whispering, come and find out. This one was almost featureless, as if still in the making, with an aspect of monotonous grimness, the edge of a colossal jungle so dark green as to be almost black, fringed with white surf, ran straight, like a ruled line, far, far along a blue sea, whose glitter was blurred by a creeping mist. The sun was fierce. The land seemed to glisten and drip with steam. Here and there, grayish, whitish specks showed up clustered inside the white surf, with a flag flying above them, perhaps. Settlements some centuries old, and still no bigger than pinheads on the untouched expanse of their background. We pounded along, stopped, landed soldiers, went on, landed custom house clerks to levy toll in what looked like a god-forsaken wilderness with a tin shed and a flagpole lost in it, landed more soldiers to take care of the custom house clerks, presumably. Some, I heard, got drowned in the surf. But whether they did or not, nobody seemed particularly to care. They were just flung out there. 
and on we went. Every day the coast looked the same, as though we had not moved, but we passed various places, trading places, with names like Grand Bassam, Little Popo, names that seemed to belong to some sordid farce acted in front of a sinister black cloth. The idleness of a passenger, my isolation amongst all these men with whom I had no point of contact, the oily and languid sea, the uniform somberness of the coast. It seemed to keep me away from the truth of things, within the toil of a mournful and senseless delusion. The voice of the surf, heard now and then, was a positive pleasure like the speech of a brother. It was something natural, and had its reason. It had a meaning. Now and then a boat from the shore gave one momentary contact with reality. It was paddled by black men. You could see from afar the white of their eyeballs glistening. They shouted, sang. Their bodies streamed with perspiration. They had faces with grotesque masks, these chaps. But they had bone, muscle, a wild vitality, an intense energy of movement that was as natural and true as the surf along their coast. They wanted no excuse for being there. They were a great comfort to look at. For a time, I would feel I belonged still to a world of straightforward facts. But the feeling would not last long. Something would turn up to scare it away. Once, I remember, we came upon a man of war anchored off the coast. There wasn't even a shed there, and she was shelling the bush. It appears the French had one of their wars going on thereabouts. Her ensign dropped limp like a rack. The muzzles of the long, six-inch guns stuck out all over the low hole. The greasy, slimy swell swung up her lazily and let her down, swaying her thin masts. In the empty immensity of earth, sky, and water, there she was, incomprehensible, firing into a continent. Pop, go one of the six-inch guns, a small flame would dart and vanish. A little white smoke would disappear. A tiny projectile would give a feeble screech. And nothing happened. Nothing could happen. There was a touch of insanity in the proceeding. A sense of lugubrious drollery in sight. It was not dissipated by somebody on board assuring me earnestly there was a camp of natives he called them enemies, hidden out of sight somewhere. We gave her her letters. I heard the men in that lonely ship were dying of fever at the rate of three a day. And we went on. We called at some more places with farcial names, where the merry dance of death and trade goes on in a still and early atmosphere as of an overheated catacomb. All along the formless coast, bordered by dangerous surf, as if nature herself had tried to ward off intruders, in and out of rivers, streams of death in life, whose banks were rotting into mud, whose waters thickened into slime, invaded the contorted mangroves, seemed to writhe at us in the extremity of an impotent despair. Nowhere did we stop long enough to get a particularized impression. But the general sense of vague and oppressive wonder grew upon me. It was like a weary pilgrimage amongst hints for nightmares. It was upward of thirty days before I saw the mouth of the big river. We anchored off the seat of the government, but my work would not soon begin till some two hundred miles farther on. 
So as soon as I could, I made a start for a place 30 miles higher up. I had my passage on the little seagoing streamer. Her captain was a Swede, and knowing me for a seaman, invited me on the bridge. I was a young man, lean, fair, and morose, with lanky hair and a shuffling gait. As we left the miserable little wharf, he tossed his head contemptuously at the shore. Been living there, he asked. Yes, I said. He continued. Fine lot, these government chaps, are they not? He spoke English with great precision and considerable bitterness. It is funny what some people will do for a few francs a month. I wonder what becomes of that kind when it goes up country. I said to him, I was excited to see that soon. So, he exclaimed. He shuffled athwart, keeping one eye ahead vigilantly, and spoke. Don't be too sure, he continued. The other day, I took up a man who hanged himself on the road. He was a Swede, too. I cried out, hanged himself? Why, in God's name? He looked out watchfully. Who knows? The sun too much for him. Or the country, perhaps. After a time, we opened a reach. A rocky cliff appeared. Mounds of turned-up earth by the shore. Houses on a hill. Others with iron roofs amongst a waste of excavations, hanging to the declivity. A continuous noise of the rapids above hovered over the scene of inhabited devastation. A lot of people, mostly natives and naked, moved about like ants. A jetty projected into the river. The blinding sunlight drowned all this at times in a sudden recrudescence of glare. There's your company station, said the Swede, pointing to three wooden barrack-like structures on the rocky slope. I'll send your things up. Four boxes, right? So, farewell. I came upon a boiler wallowing in the grass, then found a path leading up the hill. It turned aside for the boulders, and also for an undersized railway truck lying there on its back, with its wheels in the air. One was off. The thing looked as dead as the carcass of some animal. I came upon more pieces of decaying machinery, a stack of rusty rails. To the left, a clump of trees made a shady spot, where dark things seemed to stir feebly. I blinked. The path was steep. A horn tooted to the right, and I saw the natives run. A heavy and dull detonation shook the ground. A puff of smoke came out of the cliff, and that was all. No change appeared on the face of the rock. They were building a railway. The cliff was not in the way or anything. But this object looks blasting. It was all the work going on. Slight sounds behind me made me turn my head. Six black men advanced in a file, toiling up the path. They walked erect and slow, balancing small baskets full of earth on their heads, and the clink of their chains kept time with their footsteps. Black rags were wound round their loins, and the short ends behind waggled to and fro like tails. I could see every ramp. The joints of their limbs were like knots in a rope. Each had an iron collar on his neck, and all were connected together like a chain, 
whose bites swung between them, rhythmically clinking. Another report from the cliff made me think suddenly of that ship of war I had seen firing into a continent. It was the same kind of ominous voice. But these men could by no stretch of the imagination be called enemies. They were called criminals. And the outraged law, like the bursting shells, had come to them, an insoluble mystery from the sea. All their meager breasts panted together, the violently dilated nostrils quivered, the eyes stared stonily uphill. They passed me within six inches without a glance, with that complete, death-like indifference of unhappy captives. Behind this raw matter, one of the reclaimed, the product of the new forces at work, strolled despondently, carrying a rifle by his middle. He had a uniform jacket with one button off, and seeing a white man on the path, hoisted his weapon to his shoulder with alacrity. This was simple prudence, white men being so much alike at a distance that he could not tell who it might be. He was speedily reassured, and with a large, white, rascally grin and a glance at his charge, seemed to take me into partnership in his exalted trust. After all, I was also a part of the great cause of these high and just proceedings. Instead of going up, I turned and descended to the left. My idea was to let that chain gang get out of sight before I climbed the hill. You know, I am not particularly tender. I've had to strike and defend off. I've had to resist and to attack sometimes. That's only one way of resisting, without counting the exact cost. According to the demands of such sort of life as I have blundered into, I've seen the devil of violence, the devil of greed, the devil of hot desire, backed by all the stars. These were strong, lusty-eyed devils that swayed and drove men. Men, I tell you. But as I stood on this hillside, I foresaw that in the blinding sunshine of that land, I would have become acquainted with a flabby, pretending weak-eyed devil of a rapacious and pitiless folly. How insidious could he be, too? I was only to find out several months later and a thousand miles farther. For a moment I stood appalled, as though by a warning. Finally, I descended the hill, obliquely, towards the trees I had seen. I avoided the vast, artificial hole somebody had been digging on the slope, the purpose of which I found it impossible to divine. It wasn't a quarry or a sand pit, anyhow. It was just a hole. It might have been connected with the desire of giving the criminals something to do. I don't know. But I nearly fell into a very narrow ravine, almost no more than a scar on the hillside. I discovered that a lot of imported drainage pipes for the settlement had been tumbled in there. There wasn't one that was not broken. It was a wanton mashup. At last, I got under the trees. My purpose was to stroll into the shade for a moment, but no sooner within it than it seemed to me I had stepped into the gloomy circle of some inferno. The rapids were near and an uninterrupted, uniform, headlong rushing noise filled the mournful stillness of the grove, where not a breath stirred, not a leaf moved, with a mysterious sound, as though the tearing pace of the launched earth had suddenly become audible. Black shapes crouched, lay, 
sat between the trees leaning against the trunks, clinging to the earth, half coming out, half effaced within the dim light, in all the attitudes of pain, abandonment, despair. Another mine on the cliff went off, followed by a slight shudder of the soil under my feet. The work was going on. The work. And this was the place where some of the helpers had withdrawn to die. They were dying slowly, it was very clear. They were not enemies. They were not criminals. They were nothing earthly now. Nothing but black shadows of disease and starvation, lying confusedly in the greenish gloom, brought from all the recesses of the coast and all the legality of time contracts, lost in uncongenial surroundings, fed on unfamiliar food, they sickened, became inefficient, and were then allowed to crawl away and rest these moribund shapes were as free as air, and nearly as thin. I began to distinguish the gleam of the eyes under the trees. Then, glancing down, I saw a face near my hand. The bones reclined at full length with one shoulder against the tree. And slowly, the eyelids rose, and the sunken eyes looked up at me. Enormous and vacant, a kind of blind white flicker in the depth of the orbs, which died out slowly. The man seemed young, almost a boy, but you know it's hard to tell. I found nothing else to do but to offer him one of my good Swede's ship biscuits I had in my pocket. The fingers closed slowly on it and held. There was no other movement, no other glance. He had tied a bit of white worsted round his neck. Why? Where did he get it? Was it a badge? An ornament? A charm? He looked startling round against his neck. This bit of white thread beyond the seas. Near the same tree, Two more bundles of acute angles sat, with their legs drawn up. One, with his chin propped on his knees, stared at nothing. In an intolerable and appalling manner, his brother Phantom rested its forehead, as if overcome with a great weariness. And all about, others were scattered in every pose of contorted collapse, as in some picture of a massacre or pestilence. While I stood horror-struck, one of these creatures rose to its hands and knees and went off on all fours towards the river to drink. He lapped out of his hand, then sat up in the sunlight, crossing his shins in front of him, and after a time, let his woolly hand fall on his breastbone. I didn't want any more loitering in the shade, and I made haste towards the station. When near the buildings, I met a white man. He was wearing such an unexpected elegance of get-up that in the first moment I took him for some sort of vision. I saw a high, starched collar, white cuffs, a light alpaca jacket, snowy trousers, a clean necktie, and varnished boots. No hat. Hair parted, brushed, oiled, under a green-lined parasol held by a big, white hand. He was amazing, and had a penholder behind his ear. I shook hands with this miracle, and I learned that he was the company's chief accountant, and that all the bookkeeping was done at this station. He'd come out for a moment, he said, to get a breath of fresh air. The expression sounded wonderfully odd, with its suggestion of sedentary desk life. I wouldn't have mentioned the fellow to you at all, only it was from his lips that I first heard the name of the man 
I was so indissolubly connected with the memories of that time. Moreover, I respected the fellow. Yes, I respected his collars, his vast cuffs, his brushed hair. His appearance was certainly that of a hairdresser's dummy. But in the great demoralization of the land, he kept up his appearance. What's backbone? His starched collars and got-up shirt fronts were achievements of character. He had been out nearly three years, and later, I could not help asking him how he managed to sport such linen. He had just the faintest blush, and said modestly, I've been teaching one of the native women about the station. It was difficult. She had a distaste for the work. Thus, the man had verily accomplished something, and he was devoted to his books, which were an apple pie order. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. We will pick up with chapter one tomorrow. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. <laughs>